Hello listeners, I'm Carl Anker and welcome to Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As ever, I'm joined by The Athletic's Manchester United writer, Laurie Wittow. Laurie, how are you getting on? Carl, I'm good. You okay? Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. And uh, also with us is the man himself, United We Stand editor and contributing writer to The Athletic, Mr. Andy Mitten. Andy, how are you getting on? Hi Carl, I'm alright, thank you, all things considered, probably like a lot of people, it's not ideal is it, but we crack on. We do crack on, we keep going. This Sunday, The Athletic is going to be hosting a Play of the Year Award night. So throughout the week, our writers and podcast hosts have voted across a number of categories, and from 7 o'clock on Sunday, we want you to join us as we announce the winners. Before then, we want you to listen to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Yes, we're asking you to do a little bit of homework, where every day, they're going to be announcing the shortlist for each category. On Tuesday, we announced the Young Player of the Year shortlist. That included Marcus Rashford, and that's followed today, Wednesday, uh, by the Underrated Player of the Year, which contains a certain Manchester United midfielder. On Thursday, we'll go on with Team of the Year, and then on Friday, you can hear our shortlist for the main award, the Men and Women's Player of the Season. And then on Sunday, we would like you to subscribe and download the Athletic app. New subscribers right now, you can go to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod and take advantage of our 90-day free trial. That's 90 days for free on The Athletic. Right then, gentlemen, let's look into the Athletic's Young Play of the Year shortlist. Includes Chana Alexander-Arnold, Tammy Abraham, James Madison, Jack Grealish, Mason Mount. But the one we really, really care about is Marcus Rashford, who remarkably can still qualify for Young Player of the Season. Laurie, you didn't feature him as Manchester United's Young Player of the Year. Uh, what do you think about Marcus Rashford sneaking in on this list? Well, on this list, I did vote for him, um, but on my my personal Manchester United uh, Young Player of the Year, I obviously went for Scott McTominay, um, and by the time that this podcast is out, you will see who I picked for my Player of the Year for United, so hopefully all will become clear. Um, but yeah, I, I went for Scott McTominay in that category just because I thought the uh, way that he has grown this season has been um, really impressive. The, the um, expansion to his game from being this kind of uncomplicated player that we saw under Jose Mourinho because of specific um, sort of stipulations that he was asked to play with to a more um, sort of free-flowing, energetic um, kind of play. I mean, we've seen uh, this week he's been posting on his Instagram, hasn't he, that he's done a 16-minute pretty much dead-on 5K, which is a, a frightening speed to keep up. So that, that kind of speed endurance should be allowed to sort of um, go across the whole pitch I think so anyway but uh, Marcus <laughs> yeah Marcus Rashford um, clearly should be uh, well up there for, for the athletic young player shortlist I, I would say he probably deserves to win it because um, 19 goals this season um, is big his best tally uh, in a United shirt, he's become a bit more of a talisman for the club. There was obviously, you know, quite a few disquieting weeks um, when um, Solskjaer was under intense scrutiny, and Rashford stepped up. Number of games that he, um, I think, nine points that his goals have, have helped United uh, win in the Premier League this season against Tottenham, um, Liverpool. Obviously, um, he scored against Manchester City. So the big games, he, he's made a difference, and and some of the skills that he's displayed. I mean, that flip flap, or I don't know if you call it an elastico. I don't know if you have a personal preference. Carl, but that, that one against Brighton was was brilliant. The back heel assist um, for, for Anthony Marshall at Norwich was was another sort of standout moment that just made you kind of go wow. Um, so yeah, I, I think Marcus Rashford should should win this particular award. Andy, he's been wearing the number ten shirt for two seasons now, and he seems to fill it out quite well. He's become more prolific. He was never uh, the most prolific of goal scorers, and I remember Paul Scholes saying at the start of this season that. He was the scorer of great goals rather than 
someone who was scoring all the time like Van Nistelrooy. But his rate this year has really improved and he was having an incredible season uh, up to the point that he got injured and he was scoring in, in huge games and he's been become the main man. Shirts with his name on at the top sellers amongst uh, from all the shirts at Manchester United sell. And he was, when he got that injury... Uh, it became a real issue for Manchester United and, and that's why they needed to bring in uh, Igalo in, in January because they knew that there was still a lot left to play in the season. But I think that you know, in the, it's only one year ago that Barcelona wanted to sign Rashford and there were talks and Barca never thought that they'd be able to get him. But what they liked about him was his speed, the fact that he could play anywhere across the front three and they liked the fact that he was still young enough to be able to fit into their their style of play. And could you blame them for talking to them a year ago at the time when Barca had just beaten Manchester United 3-0? Probably not, but he's in a much better place now. United wouldn't have sold him. Uh, he's going to be fit again when football does resume. And I'm really excited about seeing how he links up with Fernandez. hopefully a more consistent uh, Anthony Martial, hopefully uh, and a new signing as well. Um, maybe someone like Sancho who Laurie talked about in the last podcast and he's great I think he's be, he's on his way to becoming uh, one of the best strikers in the world there's still some way to go but Jose Mourinho should deserve some credit for, for, for the play he called the one who was at the head of the talent uh, Van Hall obviously gave him his chance when he needed to because of injuries and there's a good relationship now between Rashford and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and United are benefiting from that and the fact that he's a United fan, that he come through the youth ranks, that he was born a few miles from the ground, that's all bonus points. And he's brilliant. He's a brilliant player. I know that Alex Ferguson, uh, right from going back two or three years, was saying, we really think this lad has got a chance to become a world-class player. And he's on that way. A world-class player still qualifies for the Young Player of the Year award, which is remarkable. Truly a star boy. Um, you mentioned Louis van Gaal. I want to breadcrumb that a bit. We'll get back to him in a little bit. I also want to mention one other player on this Young Player of the Year shortlist, Mr. Jack Grealish, who's the only player on the shortlist who doesn't play for a quote-unquote top six side. Um, Laurie, you've been tracking possible transfer rumours and conjecture for a little bit. Are Manchester United still interested in Jack Grealish? Uh, yes, my information is that United um, are still very much in for Jack Grealish. Um, I know, um, depending on who you speak to, um, other people might think that they're prioritising a holding midfielder or a right winger or a striker, which are all positions that, that they would look to strengthen. But um, my information is that, yeah, Jack Grealish is, is certainly still one um, that they're after. Um, I know that he attracted attention of the wrong sort for, for going out during lockdown, and, and that was noted at Old Trafford. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer obviously places a lot of faith in signing the right kind of person as well as the right kind of player. Um, so that, that wouldn't have, have you know gone down well. But... Um, in the last couple of years, certainly Grealish has developed maturity on and off the pitch and he's done a lot of good in, in his local community as well. He's, 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 a, he's a really um, impressive character in other things that he does. So, uh, you know, all things considered, United, you know, that wouldn't be anything that, that would dissuade United from trying to sign him. So um, that, that's my understanding. And also they have noted um, performances this season that he's... Um, they're taking a leadership role, I suppose. He stepped up when his team have been suffering, you know, particularly at Old Trafford, for example, scored that wonderful goal, didn't he? But also in other matches against big teams, and and that's been a, a big, um, you know, positive um, from his point of view. Um, I, I do also wonder whether a move to a club like United would would do him 
benefit in that he would be having to fight for his place every week. Um, you know, he's obviously been at Aston Villa for a number of years where he's been guaranteed a start and, and whether that kind of pressure would, would take his games to a new level. Um, yeah, so I, I do think that, and I also think that United will be in a decent position, um, you know, coming out of this crisis. It, it might sound sort of callous to say, but, um, you know, perhaps they could offer, um, you know, in certain circumstances, more upfront money um, and you know rather than it staggered out for for a higher overall fee so that, that you know ultimately they would be the, the, the player would come at a, a lower cost um, and that's that could be something that could apply to, to Grealish and Aston Villa although I don't know for certain um, but yeah ultimately I do think that there's still interest there for, for Jack Grealish certainly. Curious player a lot of questions over him where he'd play in United setup but Andy what I want to ask you is what can we say about his mentality he has been in a few scrapes and Ollie has mentioned a lot about character and seeming to reconnect United with its roots and trying to sign the right players, both in terms of uh, what's going on in their nogging as well as what uh, they do on the pitch. Well, he's made an idiot of himself several times. I know he does a lot of good, as Laurie talks about. And where Laurie says a change might be good for him because he'd be able to, he'd have to fight for his place. I think a change would be good for that reason, but also leaving Birmingham for Manchester, taking him out of that zone where he's been with his mates who sometimes he gets into scrapes with. You just can't do that. You, you can't do what he did a couple of weeks ago and be seen pictured in the morning wearing uh, slippers and trainers on different feet um, in the situation that he found himself in, especially at a club like Manchester United where there's going to be more media scrutiny. Um, he's playing 90 minutes every game for Villa. I really enjoyed, I won't say enjoyed his goal at Old Trafford, but because I'm not an Aston Villa fan, but he played really well. He tends to play on the left. I'm, I'm interested in where he would play if he came to Old Trafford. So he's playing every week. He's playing 90 minutes every week, which United love. He's not picking up any injuries. I think he only missed games against Liverpool and Wolves this season. Two huge games for Villa because Wolves won the loss both for them and Wolves are... The main rivals in the in the Premier League and Liverpool are obviously Liverpool, the team who've nearly won the league. He plays on the left, but he can play on the right. And I think it's more probable he'd play on the right if he came to Manchester United. He can also play a second striker. He played that against Manchester City, although they got beat uh, 6-1, I think it was. And he can play more centrally. So I, I think the fact that he's young, uh, adaptable, that he can play in different positions across uh, in, in attack, not not as a main striker, but that's all that that all appeals, and I, I think he'd be a signing would be absolutely welcomed by by Manchester United fans. He's the United midfield has missed at times the fight that Roy Keane, for example. I don't want to hark back to Roy Keane, but him and Nicky Butt they could put the foot in, they could get stuck in, and sometimes the midfielders miss that, and I, I like that in Grealish. He's he's he, he he can get stuck in when he needs to. And I think that English football fans like to see that inside the stadium. And I'd like him. I'd like to see him at Old Trafford. And I think it'd be a good move for him as well. Villa are a, a, a huge club, but they're not Manchester United. And just as moving from Villa to Old Trafford was good for Dwight York, I think it could and should be good for Jack Grealish as well. I like how you mentioned Roy Keane just there. We will be getting to him soon. The Athletic have an underrated player of the year shortlist. And on that list includes Fred. Um a player much improved this season. Is it a case of he was rubbish and now he's okay? Or is he legitimately a good footballer now, Laurie? 
Uh, I think he was always a good footballer, wasn't he? Um, you know, in fact, I think he played well against Manchester City for, for Shakhtar Donetsk, and that was one of the matches that United studied before before signing him. Um, clearly, last season um, he struggled to adapt to English football and the turmoil that. Um, Jose Mourinho's reign w- was in um, this season. He started off as you know probably fourth choice in midfield behind Pogba, McTominay, and Matic. Um, and Solskjaer sort of made no bones about that. Um, but what he has done is he's worked very diligently, very hard. And when he's got his chance, he's, he's absolutely seized it. And, and it perhaps was a slow grower, but he's he's become one of the most important players for United. Really, it, that sort of dynamism that he has in midfield. Um, I actually wrote in September um, that. Um, ahead of the Astana game in the Europa League, could 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 the Europa League be a sort of launch pad for Fred? And in fact, he he obviously went on and and, and did it in the Premier League in, in big matches um, and beyond. So, yeah, I I I've really liked actually watching Fred sort of develop into this player that has become a bit of a cult figure really for United now. So, um, hopefully, he can continue and, and and really solidify that place. He's called past the Fred by some sections of the fan base, and a sign of uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's good coaching. Very good coaching, and I praised Jose Mourinho before for how he used Marcus Rashford. I wouldn't praise him on how he used Fred. Fred's confidence was shattered by Manchester United's former manager, and I don't think it was fair on him. He's a good person, and he's a good player, and if a manager's going to bring a player to the club to then be difficult with him, I don't think that's fair when you're arriving in a new country when you can't speak the language. And I've spoken to Fred pretty much every month that he's been in Manchester I can remember speaking to him when he played in Burn in September of last season and he, he was struggling you know he did he did well there but he was struggling and at the start of this season he wasn't even in the squad as Laurie said he dropped right down the pecking order first four games of the season he wasn't even in the match day squad and yet he's played more games than anyone outside um, any other midfielder any other attacker and he's had some cracking games he was man of the match at Manchester City away and last season, he'd have isolated games where he was good. He was brilliant in Paris, for example, in that that brilliant win. But this season, he's been consistent. He's been playing all the time. He's been playing 90 minutes all of the time. He's, he's just really growing within himself. His family all speak really good English now. He's trying, but he's just being a typical lazy footballer where he knows he should be uh, speaking more of it. And there are United's dressing room, there are a lot of different languages in, in there. But he's, he's a decent person and I'm delighted for him. I spoke to him after the last game that United played at Old Trafford. I waited ages for him and it was like 90, 90 minutes after the, the final whistle and he came out with his family in the tunnel and he was just buzzing. He was really buzzing and I'm delighted for him as on a sort of human level that someone who was being written off as being an expensive flop because he cost a lot of money. He cost over 50 million. And I remember October time of this season when things were going bad. He'd played at uh, Newcastle United away. Things hadn't gone well. And there was quite a lot of uh, finger pointing in Old Trafford who actually identified Fred. And I never got to the bottom of it. I know that, as Laurie said, he was being scouted closely. And people were saying, who signed him? Who sanctioned this signing? And that has all just completely melted away. Um, and it's brilliant because he's become a, a top player and some of the other midfielders like Matic are doing really well too. So it paints a much brighter picture than if we were talking about Fred uh, four or five months ago. And 
he's now got genuine ambitions to be playing in the Brazil national team, and you can see why he's he's he's, he's eliminating those mistakes. He was giving the ball away too much. His confidence was dropping when he made a mistake early on in games. And I know that Kieran McKenna and Michael Carrick have worked very, very hard with him to, to eliminate that. And we're seeing the results. So credit to, to the player, but also to his coaches. As ever, listener, we are doing the rebooted series on the Athletic, both in podcast and written form. And it's, we're talking about that night in Turin perhaps the greatest single performance of an individual Manchester United player ever. This time, 21 years ago, Manchester United went to Turin for the second leg of their Champions League semi-final against Juventus. They had drawn 1-1 at Old Trafford and it was all to play for. Andy, you were there. I don't want to hear all about it. How did you get tickets? How did you get over to Turin? How drunk were you? No, maybe. How long have you got? It's the greatest game ever. I'm smiling just just thinking about it, and I've written a huge piece on it for for the Athletic, which has gone up today, and I put my heart and soul into that piece. How did we get there? We got cheap flights. We ended up in Genoa, and we hired cars, and we drove the last two hours into Turin that way. Tickets? That's a good question. I was let down for a match ticket uh, about an hour before the game. There was a mix-up, so. I ended up in, in the main stand, surrounded by all these very middle-class Juventus fans. And clearly, I don't look like uh, I'm, I'm from Turin. And, but they were all right with me, which gave me a misplaced sense of confidence. And when their team went 2-0 up, they were looking at me, sort of shrugging the shoulders, saying, you know, you've got a decent side of your support, but we're Juventus. We're the best team in the world. We've consistently shown that. Sorry for your wasted journey. Um, that's how I felt. And then United just came back, inspired by Roy Keane, but every play was magnificent that night. And to be fair to those people around me, they were saying to me in perfect Italian, which I didn't understand, uh, this is a great team. This Manchester team is really, really good. That's what I felt. I felt that there was people going, wow, we're being hit by a cracking football team. And then at half-time... I wanted something to eat. There was nothing on sale. Deli Alpi was a big bowl. It was too big for Juventus and they've moved since. It, it held 67,000. It only holds 40,000 now. And it was cold. It had been built for Italia 90. It was too far from the pitch. There was nothing on sale at half time, apart from these tiny little Italian coffees, espressos. But I, in 1999, I was drinking instant coffee. <laughs> I didn't know what an espresso was. So I bought the only thing you could buy. And and this is this tiny little drop of liquid. Went back to the seat. And I've never felt at that half time, including the final, and I'm not supposed to say this, as a, a high as high following Manchester United because I didn't expect Manchester United to get in the European Cup when I was a kid. I didn't expect them to win league titles. Manchester United paid for AC Milan to come to Old Trafford in 1988 to play a friendly match. United were miles off the best in Europe. And here we were, this this team from the city where I was from, going to the best team in the world with Zidane, um, with that incredible midfield that uh, Juventus had. They'd been in the final, they were going for a fourth consecutive European Cup final. And United were taking them apart. And I'd never seen it before. And the prospect of seeing the team I supported reaching a European Cup final, not winning it, just reaching it, that was enough for me. It really was. And in the second half, Cole and York, 
it was just it's just an incredible feeling that has never been replicated since and everybody says the final and some people with good reasons say that the Arsenal semi-final replay was the greatest game they ever saw I get that I totally get that but for me personally you can't help how you feel and being in that stadium and and seeing United win and then unfortunately getting a, a misplaced sense of confidence where I wanted to be with my friends there were four and a half thousand United fans on the other side of the stadium and I made my way round, and I've written this in great detail in, in the piece. And I was behind their end and I went up to a steward and I said, Manchester, Manchester. And I was being an idiot because Juventus have got a really big, still active ultra group. And somebody heard me and I heard Inglesi. And the next thing is, he uh, kicked me really hard in my thigh. And he, Inglesi, there's an Englishman here. And I'm pumped up with adrenaline and like an idiot, I put my foot in it even more because I said, Torino, Torino, as if I'm from Turin. But Torino were Juventus's main rivals. I couldn't have said anything worse. And this steward came to me. And again, in perfect Italian, which I didn't understand a word of, but I understood every word. He said, I don't care who you're saying you are. Just get out of here. I, I, I will create a buffer for you here. Get out of here now. And I ran away down that slope, away from the stadium, towards the hire car and waited for my friends to come out the United end. It was an hour later and we were buzzing because we were going to Barcelona for the final and we'd never experienced anything like it. United kept failing in, in Europe and we got out of the, the hire car back in Genoa and I put my foot on the floor and just collapsed and the adrenaline had worn off and my leg had come out in a huge bruise and my leg just gave way and nothing had broken. I was all right. But it was all completely discoloured. And it was from that kick from the Juventus fan. And it's not every day that I go to a game, get booted and see my team reach the European Cup final, having been 2-0 down after 11 minutes because Inzaghi, the notorious goal poacher, was doing his stuff. And yet he wasn't as good as Roy Keane. Roy Keane was that night. And I've seen Keane since and he plays it down. A bit, I'm a bit disappointed sometimes that he plays it down. I did all right. I don't know whether it's the Roy Keane act, uh, but the whole team were brilliant. And then Jesper Blomqvist, who I want to speak to for, for the Athletic, Keane went mad at him and because Jesper gave him the ball and Keane got booked and Keane would miss the final. And Jesper said, to, it wasn't even a bad ball that I gave Keane. And I told Keane this story only three or four years ago. I bumped into him in Manchester Airport and Keane had not spoken to Jesper for for seven games to the end of the season because he felt he got him sent off. And and wow. Kim was Kim was gutted when I told him. And he just thought about it and processed it and said, Hell of a player, Jesper. Hell of a player. And <laughs> you know, all these sort of side you know, Andy Cole dancing on the plane home saying, We tampered with him. We tampered with him. And Obviously, in the dressing room, we've we've seen footage, but they, they were the best team in the world, and Manchester United went there and went two 0 down and beat them three two. You can't beat it, Laurie. Your uh, nebulous age. I'm not going to reveal how old you are on this podcast. Um, were you allowed to watch this game? I was about seven, so I remember watching the first half where United are two 0 down after eleven minutes, 
and then just couldn't quite understand what was going on. I actually um, called my dad this morning just to remind myself of, of exactly how we watched it because I know we went to the home leg because we went to all the European games of that era where we'd been to Juventus at home when they first came and, and they did us 1-0 and as Andy said, they were the best team in the world really and you just sort of thought, how are United ever going to get to this level? And then they you know, they came in, in the semi-final and it was that late goal from uh, Giggs to equalise it and give it a bit more of a, of a feel like United could actually progress when really they could well have been you know out of sight before half time Juventus so um, yeah no so I spoke to my dad we watched it in the living room I was allowed to watch it and he, he sort of reminded me because you, you sort of always think about memories if, if I, don't, I feel like if you weren't at matches and even if you were at certain matches you're not sure exactly how much you remember because it's your own memory and how much you remember because you've since watched footage or you've, you've told tales amongst yourselves so but yeah it's sort of similar to you I suppose we were watching it 2-0 down um, I remember it being a kind of a whirlwind start from Juventus trying to turn the ball across the face of goal deflected and in But my dad claims, he said to me, uh, at 2-0 down, well, you know, 2-0 isn't that different from 1-0. You know, United still need two goals, really. Um, so, obviously, you know, pressing uh, is, his, is his claim. When Keane scored... Beckham with a corner. It's towards Keane! Roy Keane with a captain's goal for Manchester United! first after about sort of 20 24 25 minutes you sort of thought okay right back in it and, and, and you know equalized him before half time united are, united are through at that point and and the one thing that does stand out for me um is is that classic line that andy mentions in his in his piece on that york he skipped through it's dwight york he's brought down by peruzzi carlo finishing off full speed ahead barcelona full steam ahead Barcelona which I just thought was absolutely brilliant um, you know you've got York going through getting taken down by Peruzzi and Cole you're sort of thinking right penalty red card but Cole just wh- you know whips in round the side and, and, and slots it into the open net and that celebration was magnificent and I just remember thinking is there a chance that we could actually go to Barcelona as well as, as I'm sure Andy was thinking at the same time it's rightly regarded as Keane's best ever game a player who you know for some is regarded as a bit of a hatchet man but he's passing Oh, God, he could really ping a ball, couldn't he, Andy? Yeah, he was accurate, fast. He looked to move the ball forward all the time. He was completely driven. If Manchester United weren't attacking, then Roy Keane felt that the team were failing and he he could muscle it as well and he had loads of energy. I think over a four four or five year period, he was he was up there as one of the top three midfielders in the world. When Roy Keane was at his peak, he was incredible and the other players looked up to him. He was Manchester United's captain. He could mix it as well as we've seen and we've talked about with players like Patrick Vieira, who, who was his nemesis, another great central midfielder. But he was always about looking forward, Keane. He hated talking about the past. Um, he'd ask him about things in interviews. No, don't want to talk about it. That happened last week. I'm like, Roy, Roy, I've come to speak to you. Right? I, I've got a fill. 
a massive interview with you and I'm sat in the Manchester United grill room with you and Paddy Crerand, right? Paddy stopped playing 30 years ago. I've got to talk about the past. What do you want me to do? Predict the future with you. And he goes, <laughs> all right then. And he just played down his own role. And you get, I've, spoke, I've spoke to pretty much every player who played that night in, in Turin. And yeah, I remember Nicky Butt two years ago saying, you know, everyone says about Roy, but we all played well. So you can see that the other players, um, that they know that they, they were incredible. I mean, United had gone to Turin in 96, right? And Gary Neville says it's the only time in his entire career where he felt, I shouldn't be on the pitch here. I'm not good enough. This is boys against men. That's how good Juventus were. And in the space of three years, United were going there and beating them, having been uh, two goals down. And as Laurie said, that first leg, Juventus were miles better than Manchester United. And I was thinking United have just reached their level here because they got to the semi-final in 97 against Dortmund, but they were unlucky there. But Juventus were better than Manchester United, except they weren't. I really, really urge you to hunt out Andy's piece in full. It is incredible. Uh, it will bring a tear to your eye. That's a Carl Anker promise. Head over to The Athletic right now and go read it. New subscribers, athletic.com forward slash United pod to take advantage of a 90-day free trial. There's also a really good piece from Laurie to give Laurie his flowers as well about Louis van Gaal and his just very weird tenureship at Manchester United. United have had good managers, they've had bad managers, they've had lucky managers and they've had unlucky managers, but I don't think they've ever had a manager quite like Louis van Gaal. Laurie, how was this piece for you? I actually really enjoyed um, writing it, researching it, speaking to people about it, because obviously it's a period of time that isn't too far in the past that you know people have forgotten about, and, and, and the, the sort of repercussions, if you like, um, the ripples are still being felt now, um, but also it's, it's long enough in the past where people perhaps feel um, a bit freer to talk openly about sort of what was going on, and, and to be fair at the time, you know, a lot of stuff was reported really accurately and with great detail about the difficulties that that Van Hal had uh, and the the kind of problems he made for himself really because the style of play was was ultimately what proved his downfall and it, it was excruciating um you know the the number of, of nil nils uh, you know 11 matches in a row at Old Trafford where United failed to score before half time um, and more sort of um, importantly than that, the kind of philosophy that he had, it'd be so particular with how he wanted his players positioned on the pitch. It, you know, he installed video cameras at Carrington, you know, and he would go back through the footage with his players to say, OK, you were five yards, the wrong place here. You know, I want you here. I want you, you know, five yards to the left or whatever it might be. Uh, and that over a period of time became claustrophobic for players it, it made them self-conscious in terms of how they would play the game on the pitch you know if, if you're always thinking about where your position is does that allow you the mental freedom to then actually you know show some expression creativity you know off the cuff kind of kind of stuff so in the piece I mentioned how uh, Wayne Rooney actually went to Van Hal. he got dropped for the um Boxing Day game in his second season at Stoke. Um, uh, he came on at half time because United were absolutely dreadful. I was actually at that game uh, as a reporter, and and, and um, yeah, it was it was pretty dire stuff um, from United's point of view. Um, and Rooney went into Van Hal's office after that and, and pretty much said, 
you know, I've been dropped because of the way you're asking me to play. I'm, when you when you bring me back into the team, I'm going to play the way I want to play, um, more with more freedom, with more flexibility of position. And you know, Rooney then um, I think scored seven goals in in seven matches after that. So you know, he he certainly felt at least that he was a better player when he was liberated from the the, the restrictions placed on him. Van Hal's sort of position on it, and Ander Herrera um, has spoken about this in comparison to Marcelo Bielsa, which who also thinks that winning by possession is, is the way to go. But uh, Bielsa feels like you should hunt the ball, whereas um, Van Hal thinks the ball should come to you because of your structure. But obviously that made for United to be very ponderous, very slow. Um, you know, they had the most possession in, in the Premier League in both of his seasons by, by quite a distance, but also the most number of backwards passes by a long way, um, which basically, you know, it tells you that they were just passing, passing, passing for the sake of it without the potency, without the penetration. And obviously that's something that, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and various other people connected to United realised was um, a key pillar of, of United as a, as a, as a club, um, the way that they would play. So, for example, in Ferguson's final season, I think it was something like 45 passes before you had a shot. Um, in Van Hal's season, it was up towards the high 60s. So it was just a lot slower, uh, the tempo. Somebody actually said to me when I was speaking to them, who was very closely connected to the club, said um, he was just speaking a different language to United. You know, uh, Van Gaal thought that being in possession of the ball was attacking football, but to United fans and, and to be fair to a lot of a lot of fans, really, just shuffling the ball around um, the opponent's uh, box isn't really considered attacking. So um, we're going to a lot more things. There's, there's a few um, little um, nuggets that I've been able to bring out that I believe are fresh um, in terms of Van Gaal's farewell speech almost at the Corinthia Hotel after the FA Cup final obviously news leaked out that Mourinho was going to take over moments before he went into his press conference having won the FA Cup which is a really awkward um, position to be in and for whatever his failings I think that was unfair Um, and you know he got very prickly at the fact that he was being asked about his status rather than the fact that he'd won you know as he called it the first title since Ferguson Um, and he waved the FA Cup you know to journalists and said you know sarcastically thanks for the congratulations but when he then um held a breakfast meeting the next morning and to be fair every single person turned up um it wasn't like you know the mob happy well he's off and and we don't respect him i think people did respect him at least and did appreciate the kind of character he was around the place because he could he could listen to advice he could he could take on board opinions albeit he would then probably you know he would he would alter his his stance a little bit but it would still be the same kind of, of doctrine that he was implementing but people still did turn up um you know whether that was because he had uh, made it clear how important he viewed eating together at meals which he had done for two years and he always gave a little speech at the end of these meals sort of to wrap up and, and, and suggest what was going to happen the next day he, he did the same again this time but it was much more emotional he actually gave players um, schedules for the summer as well to take part in even though you know he wasn't sure whether he would he would still be around. It was described as a slightly weird atmosphere by, by some people that were there, but others described it as a very emotional atmosphere and, and a very touching speech that he gave. So he's a very complex character, and, and I think it depends. You, you can sort of separate the man who was a very gregarious and um, quite funny at times, um, you know, individual from the football that he played, which just was never ever going to be a success at Manchester United. Andy, he gave Marcus Rashford his debut along with a bunch of other youngsters. But he also tried playing Ashley Young and Chris Smalling as emergency strikers. We've spoken about Louis van Gaal before. What's your verdict on his tenure? Oh, firstly, I'm looking forward to reading Laurie's piece. I'm sorry I've not read it so you far. haven't already, but... Andy. Oh. <gasps> sorry, I'll, I'll be honest, mate. It sounds really interesting because Van Gaal was really interesting. 
And I think I, I got, um, I've been in sort of sporadic contact with him for various reasons. And in my last email from him, he told me off. I'm like, who are you to tell me off? I don't, I'm not going to tell you the details, but it's quite funny. And you, you can argue for and against him. The bottom line is, as you say, the football towards the end was terrible. And I did feel sorry for him at Wembley. And United fans didn't do themselves any favours that day. Booing when Louis van Aal's name was mentioned. I just won the FA Cup. I'm sorry. It's all right from those United fans who ridicule people who are too quick to react online and protect the status of the fans at the games. Well, that day at Wembley, United fans, they should not have booed a manager who just won the FA Cup. But that just shows how annoyed people had got, how bad the football had got. There were horrendous statistics coming out. A mate of mine said he'd not seen a goal at his end of the ground for like nine months. It was getting really <laughs> bad. And he feels and that the players, he didn't have the players to do what he wanted to do. And that the club should have flexed their, their muscles more in the transfer market. I don't fully buy that. Uh, I've spoke to several players about him. Some of them, they simply did not like him. They didn't like, uh, the, they felt he was too much of a stickler. And there were a couple of very experienced Manchester United players and one came for dinner a minute late and got castigated by it. And this is a lad who played three or 400 times for the club. He just I've got to get out of here. This is just ridiculous. And he was a good professional player as well. Uh, another lad, um, he, just, he just felt that he was getting bullied by him. And he just said, I'm leaving. And he left. And he's a very good player as well. So there was a talent purge. You know, too many good players. You could argue, you know, Johnny Evans is a very good footballer. He's a United fan. He didn't cost anything. And he was allowed to go for peanuts. That's probably a mistake. Raphael, he was a decent right back. Darren Fletcher was a, a decent player. And were those who came in markedly better? You know, Marcus Rojo? He had his moments, of course he did, but these lads came in on huge contracts and a lot of Van Hal signings, they didn't work out. Van Hal signed Di Maria, he signed Falcao, he signed Schweinsteiger, he signed Schneidlin. History's not going to look back on the people that he signed and say this guy was getting things right because he wasn't. But football is only entertainment and the sight of him sat there on the when he fell over and his legs were kicking in the air. I think he's a good human. Uh, there's so many good stories coming out about him and stuff which never really came out about him. And I was speaking a lot to his best friend, an extremely posh Dutch, Dutch gentleman. Right? And here's how I came across this guy. United played Bruges in 15. And this guy was doing an impression of Louis van Gaal. And I said, well, you sound just like him. And it turns out he's his best mate. So he's doing an impression of his best mate. So I stay in touch with this guy. And he basically, as a journalist, if I wanted to know anything, I'd go to him. And he he, he told me that he was going to Manchester a lot. And he rang me one day and said, uh, Louis, Louis, Louis is very concerned about the homeless problem in your city. And he wants to get down with these guys. He wants to know their story, but he's scared He's scared that it'll be in the newspapers and what's going on. And this was a man with a social conscience. His wife, I'm told, was absolutely lovely, you know, with all the neighbours going to the club shop. So there's so many different facets. And I'm really looking forward to reading Laurie's piece about it because I didn't know the stuff about the the Corinthia Hotel. Uh, I was there in the mix zone at Wembley when he walked past and he'd basically just been told he'd been sacked, except he hadn't been. United didn't deal with it right that day. I'm sorry. They made a mistake there. And I think the club would recognise that as well. And 
you know, it, it, it was an unedifying end to a term which had started so well. I mean, he beat Real Madrid 4-1 in one of his first games and one senior United staffer went up to him and said, thank you, thank you, we've come out of this finally after what happened last season with David Moyes. And, and Van Hall quite rightly said, we've done nothing yet. So mm. it's a very interesting uh, subject to write about and, mm. and to talk about. It really is. There's probably plenty more, isn't there, Andy? Sorry. I'm sure there is, mate. You know, And as journalists, th- th- this will come out and... He he's uh, he, there's so many stories about him, and he, sometimes um, he could be quite abrasive, and other times where he said, "In Holland, we say we tip our hat to this," and you're thinking, <laughs> you don't even know what he means, but it, it's, it's football. He should be entertaining, and it, it sometimes get quite aggressive with with the journalists. I didn't like it when the stories went out that he's got two games to save his job, and I didn't like it because it wasn't true. And he's having to deal with um, stories here, uh, defending himself. And ultimately, in November 15, United went top of the league at Watford, but then they went on a run where I don't think they won for eight matches. And with each of those games where United didn't win, you could see that by the time we got to Stoke, I think it was away on Boxing Day, there was mutiny in the air, in the media. Not, not as much among the fans, but in the media, like, this guy's got to lose his job because no one had ever seen United struggle so much. And since then, they have struggled. Oli Gunnar had a terrible run. Jose had a terrible run as well. So it's all interesting. I feel, Laurie, that we could just talk about it for ages. There's so many different facets to it which make it interesting as a journalist. There was one moment where Andy mentioned an email, and I did actually email Van Hal around this piece, and he very politely declined uh, sort of to be interviewed and just said, focus on current coaches, please, which I think <laughs> is a fair enough point to make. And he, and he also made a point to me as well, you know, uh, Ed Woodward. And Oli Gunnar deserves support. I'm like, well, I'm not not supporting him. I'm asking you something else. So it, it, it tallies with what I've been told, Laurie. Good. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this week's podcast. And listener, I hope you've really enjoyed this. Um, check out both gentlemen's pieces. And he's written a superb article on Turin and the magic of Roy Keane. And also, it's really moving, involving some really heartfelt stuff about his family. And, and Laurie's done fantastic work about the man who talked about sex machism for Manchester United. <laughs> Van Hal's term was really, really weird. Um, but we do have to wrap. So, one last order of business. Listeners, go to the forward slash Man United pod to take advantage of our 90-day free trial. And uh, other than that, it's thank you from me. It's thank you from Laurie. Cheers, guys. And thank you from Andy. Cheers, enjoyed it. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in for another episode of Talk of the Devils. That's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We'll be back next week. Oh.